So last time when we talked, we discussed about uh, protection, permission, and, and potency. These are three words that come out of psychology. And it's funny about, especially the issue of <coughs> because it seems that in Asia, the way that, or in Thailand I know best, the way that the children are raised here, uh, their permission has never been robbed of them. That in fact, they're expected uh, to get uh, value out of the Dhamma, it's a Buddhist country. Yeah. And yet in the West, something has happened so that many people when they feel or when they hear that they in fact can uh, come out of their misery and live a happy life, they don't do it because they think that it's maybe for someone else or they don't have all the stuff that they need or whatever. And it winds up being merely an issue of permission that you have always been seeking permission for whatever. You have to raise your hand or maybe two fingers to go to the bathroom when you're in uh, grade school, right? Exactly, you have yeah. to get permission for everything. Well, when you're an adult, you can go to the bathroom without raising your hand and ask for permission. Why do you have to have permission to be happy? It's, it's a conundrum I can't. It's interesting. It's just conditioned. Yes. Is, it truly is. It's the conditioning that, in fact, we can uh, talk about that conditioning um, in, in the form of the Pali word of Sankara. And that, in fact, many of the translators actually use that word conditioning or conditioned. But when they read it in the Pali, they don't make that connection about, oh, yes, I have been conditioned my whole life. Mm-hmm. Every time a parent spoke to me, it was a form of conditioning. And so the condition is that uh, most people's condition is that they're not happy. You have been told that you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to be happy. And you haven't gotten X, Y, and Z yet, therefore you can't be happy. Right. Well, that may be true if the conditioning party were in fact in charge of your feelings. Yeah. And that much of society is in fact the delusion that people can be controlled by controlling their feelings. Basically, what we're actually talking about is, is that people are can be controlled because, uh, let us say, the charlatans and the propagandists and the psychologists all know how to manipulate instincts. Fair, yeah. And happiness is not an instinct. But fear is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, they manipulate uh, people through fear. Um, and the, and the sister to fear is greed. 
Why do I say that greed is a sister of fear? The, the answer to that is, is that if you're not afraid, then you probably don't want something. But if you are afraid, then you do want something. What is it that you want? You want safety. Yeah. yeah. You want security. You want a weapon. You want to weaponize. You want money. <laughs> exactly. Right. So um, when we see that, um, that basically we can be happy all on our own if we can remove the roadblocks that we put into place. And one of those roadblocks is, in fact, permission. You have my permission. Can you mm-hmm. give yourself permission to be joyful, to be happy is in this, this moment, this, right this permi- now? Yeah. <laughs> this permission, it's a part of the Sila Bhatta Paramasa, um, right? It's this rule. Oh, isn't it ever? It's this rule that we oh, set up. Right, it's a rule you set up. The rules that you cling to and the rules that you follow say you've got to be doing A, B, and C in order to get uh, happiness. Or let us call it, a better word for it would be satisfaction. Mm-hmm. That you can't be happy if you're dissatisfied. But if you are satisfied, then probably you're happy. Mm-hmm. Or you can say you're dissatisfied when, in fact, you're not really quite satisfied. And that's why you're not really happy. You can say, yeah, I'll put up with it. But you (laughs) don't really like it. But when you actually are completely satisfied, then you're going to be happy. So in a way, then, getting permission to be happy means that you also have to have permission to be satisfied. And all that we give in our culture is people give them permission to be dissatisfied. Mm. If you're dissatisfied with your education, you need more. First grade was not enough. Mm-hmm. Or second, or high school, or university. It's not enough, not enough. And you can't be happy until you learn it all. Only guess what? There is more to learn than any one human being could possibly learn. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's true, then you are absolutely bound and guaranteed to be unhappy through education because there's no end to it. You get a PhD in law or jurisprudence or whatever, and then you get an MD and then you get an MBA. <laughs> yeah, and then you realize you're not the smartest person where you work. <laughs> right, and right, exactly so. All right, so. We have to find a way then to gain permission to be happy right now. And there are many little techniques that we can do. One of them is that, um, let's put it this way, there are thousands of years of history of music. And that part of music training is to know what kind of music sounds joyful and Mm -hmm. what kind of music sounds doleful. And so with that, you can say, all right, if I sing a doleful song to myself, 
then I'll be in a doleful mood. But if I can sing a happy song to myself, then that actually gives me permission to be happy. Mm. And so singing a little song would be, in fact, you could think of that as a mantra. Now, in fact, the original idea of mantras way, way back when, and also even modern times in India, that the Indian guru will give the Indian meditation student a mantra with the kind of the understanding, not that everybody gets the same mantra, but if the, if the teacher has got a mantra for this student that he knows is going to work, the reason why it works is because the mantra itself is going to work on the student to let him be happy. Mm. And so Ram, 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 Ram may mean nothing to you because you haven't had a little Ram doll or Ram painted on your walls when you were a child. Exactly, yeah, it means nothing. Means nothing to you, all right? But there is a mantra in the West that we could use. It has a, quite a lot of meaning to some people depending upon the circumstances. And in fact, everybody kind of gets, uh, gets the joke of it. And that would be the mantra is Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola. Or maybe from time to time to switch up Pepsi-Cola, Pepsi-Cola. Mm. But Coca-Cola is better than Pepsi, so we'll stay with the mantra Coca-Cola. <laughs> you see how that goes. All right. That in fact, we can cheer ourselves up that when we are little kids, we naturally are joyful. That's part of being a human being. And it's part of this culture for the adults to come in and squash the joy out of every child and put them to work. <laughs> That's how it feels. That's exactly what the intention is. Oh no, you stop playing. You put that cell phone or that baby doll down and you pick up your book and you do ABCs and one, two, threes and write this out and learn. All right. No fun here. Yeah. And we're trained and we're trained that way, <clears throat> which means that we're given permission to work hard. Our environment is set up to give us protection to work hard. And we have permission to work really hard with the greed that we're taught. But the society does not give you that uh, permission, protection, and potency to be what you want to be right now. Because they can't make a profit off of you. Mm -hmm. And so they ingrain all of this stuff into you from childhood that winds up being our now our own attachments to our own ways of doing things. That's the Sila Bhatta Paramasa. And so in a way, we almost now have to have permission to come out of that old way of doing things so that we can get permission to be satisfied, to be happy, to be content. Mm -hmm. When? Anytime you think of it. One of the... Uh... One of the feelings that often arises when I have been working on this is it feels almost wrong to give this permission. Like there's a sense of like I'm breaking a somewhat of a condition, like a, something protecting me almost. Like uh, mm -hmm. it's going against what should be the way. This is the sense I feel as I'm moving towards what you're saying right now. And 
mm-hmm. it's it's very deeply entrenched in the way I think about this. Mm, um, I know. You have been raised well according to the standards of society. Yeah, they did, they did good with me. Pardon? They did a good job with me, right? Yeah, it turned you into quite a little worker bee. Mm-hmm. And that many people are like that, and they wind up being worker bees their whole life and never really satisfied. Mm-hmm. All they get are the, um, uh, let us say, the, the benefits that the worker bee gets. But they're never really satisfied. So, the whole teaching of the Dhamma is to put all of that aside and go with what's happening right here in this moment. So that when you recognize, oh, you don't, in fact, have um, the protection you need, looking at that, that means that there is still some fear in there that you're looking at. And that's why you brought that up, Mm -hmm. that you need protection. So let's talk about that. What is it that you need protection from? So it feels like this is uh, abandoning a future that holds the promise of the satisfaction that I would be giving myself right now. So if I give myself the satisfaction, it's like now everything that I thought of as being worthwhile sort of becomes optional. So I don't have to get a a nice car. I don't have to get a nice girl. I don't have to get a nice. And that's a scary thing because that's where I've assumed the satisfaction comes from. Oh, okay. So the scary part is not that you will have to do without those things. The scary part is well, if I don't go pursue those things, how will I live my life? Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. more that than it, than it is. Right. Yeah. Well, guess what? Nobody knows the answer to that, but nobody knew the answer to what it was going to be like if you did pursue those things. Only now you're beginning to see that, uh, that in fact, the thought of pursuing those things gave you a false sense of security that yes, you're doing. Yeah. You're doing the plan. You're doing what you were told to do. You believe that the promise will be there. If you do what you're told to do, eventually you'll get the promise. Mm-hmm. You'll get your reward, right? And now you're saying, well, wait a minute. That stuff that I thought that I wanted in order to be satisfied now looks unsatisfying to me. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's worrisome as a... It's almost like seeing this investment I've, I've been putting my time and energy into may actually not be as valuable as I thought it was. Um, so, but. Well, that's according to some future. Yes, yep. That you really don't know about. Correct. That you would believe me if I told you that no one knows the future. No one knows what's going to happen next. Yep, I believe that. All right. Well, that means that it's better then to be prepared for whatever might come rather than only be prepared for what you were told was going to be eventual. 
because now you're going now you're seeing that that stuff is not eventual that you don't in fact know what's going to happen mm-hmm. so maybe it's better to be prepared in advance for whatever happens i couldn't agree more okay like, like the boy scouts to be prepared right <laughs> yeah got me exactly yeah so what we need is we need a four-bladed dama knife yeah yeah what are the blades on that dhamma? Right view, <laughs> right sati, right effort, and right attitude. Those are the four blades of the dhamma knife. Mm-hmm. And okay. when you put all the blades into one knife, that means that it's unified. That's number five on the Eightfold Noble Path. And when you have that dhamma knife, that means you don't have to be sneaky or tricky or try to hoodwink anybody or anything to get what you want because you've already got what you need. Mm-hmm. That means that your sila becomes great. Mm-hmm. That if you don't want anything, you're not about to hurt anybody to go get it. Mm-hmm. You're also wise enough to know they might try to get it back. <laughs> yeah, it's dangerous. Exactly. And so this four-bladed Dhamma knife of the of the Dhamma Scouts is then with the motto of be prepared, be prepared for anything. All right. So let's look at some eventualities that are going to happen or might happen to you. And that one of the major issues about the things that could possibly happen to someone is, is that even thinking about it will bring up the feelings of that event. And the event will certainly bring up those feelings. Okay. Okay. So one of the feelings that you could have would be the thought of losing your job. No more income. Mm-hmm. Is that a is that a terrifying thought? Not not, not terribly. No. Okay. Well, what is a terrible thought then? What could happen? Um I guess never progressing financially. I'm 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 still beginning my financial sort of life. I, right now, I don't have. So I think that would be if I stay in a place where I don't build enough wealth to live, where I have freedom. That would be that would be pretty pretty scary for me to get stuck without. Well, let's go to the other end of that extreme. If you were a prince in a palace with all the princely duties and all the consorts and all of the stuff that had to do with keeping uh, that princehood alive, does that sound like a lot of work? Yeah, sounds like all a right. good amount. But if some prince left the palace and went off and sat down in, in under a tree and enjoyed the rest of his life that lasted another 45, 50 years then that would have been an improvement over being trapped in that palace, right? I would say so. Well, that's what happened to the Buddha. (laughs) He was better off without the princely life. Mm, Okay. All right. And that I know many, many, many wealthy people, some of them personally, others by fame and reputation and whatnot. And you can say without a doubt, every one of them is not satisfied and happy living a wonderful life. Mm. 
Okay. Some of those guys got rich because they uh, did a crime and now they're on the lam. And so they buy uh, a piece of an island and they hide out. But they're still on the lam, always afraid that they're going to get caught. Oh, that's not. Others will um, have money, but then they just want more and more. That Whatever they've got is not enough. Mm-hmm. So I ask you this question, how much for you is enough? I, I want enough to eat food and to feel safe in a environment that I'm not. Well, just... I know millions of people, many of them personally, who eat and live a very happy, secure life and they are unemployed. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I also know millions and millions more people who are employed, they do eat, but they don't have a satisfactory life. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. It's a good point, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's, it makes uh, the argument a little bit invalid when it comes to um, having a career, building a stable income, these things aren't necessarily what stable what in, what stable income whose income is stable this year oh well <laughs> very few people right very few people now let's say even in normal circumstances or even when the stock market is going up and all the people and pundits on television will say that the economy is doing very well still are there not millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people who are dissatisfied? Of course. With or without a job? Mm -hmm. Both. So having a job may not be what uh, the society has claimed it to be. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's fast backwards <laughs> for a while mm -hmm. and go back before the Industrial Revolution where no one had a job. And still we were capable of building societies and cities. We still had war and we still had happy people. But no one had a job, especially not an hourly wage job. They didn't even have that concept. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we can see that in fact, there are cultures that do not in fact need jobs mm -hmm. that an artisan can artist mm -hmm. and if and if people like his artistry they can get it from him yeah that's true all right so um in fact let me tell you a story this story actually is a sutta and the story is about right livelihood haven't told this story very often and that is is that the buddha told a story of a man who had a family. I think he was taking care of an elderly mother or something like that. And what he would do is he would go down to the riverbank and there he would find the diggings up of the otters and the rats and the snakes and whatnot so that he could get mud that had been separated from the sand. That normally you'll have a mud layer and then it's covered with sand, but because of the animals there at the riverbank, he knew where to look, and he could just go get mud that was ready. Okay. He'd already been prepared by the, uh, by the animals. He didn't have to dig 
the soil or anything. He just picked up the mud that was laying in uh, little ripply piles that were left by the animals. He would take it home and mold it into pottery and leave it in the yard to dry. And he had a sign up in the yard saying, take what you want and leave what you think it's worth. And he supported himself and his family with that. And the Buddha talks about that is that's a real clear example of right livelihood. He's not out hawking. He's not selling. He's not digging in the dirt. Every action from start to finish is a pure act on his on his behalf. Okay. Okay. So that means that there are ways that we can live with right livelihood. But our culture does not support it. And the reason for that is one little three letter acronym. GDP. The gross national product is really gross. (laughs) But there is one country in the world. Unfortunately, getting visas is not easy to get there because uh, the country that I'm talking about is Bhutan. But Bhutan lets the, uh, the Indian government handle all its foreign affairs with one stipulation. Don't issue visas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. If, if India cannot uh, uh, issue visas to get into Bhutan, that just isolates the whole country completely. They don't have a, a gross national product. They have a gross national happiness quotient. <laughs> Naturally, you can understand that Bhutan is a Buddhist country. Yeah, clearly. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. Because they promote the happiness and well-beings of each individual person. Yeah. That in fact, when people get involved with the Dhamma in the West, just like you, they come out of, or let us say you are still immersed in uh, capitalism. Mm-hmm. And that in fact, the capitalistic uh, propaganda is that anything other than capitalism is bad. Mm-hmm. And only capitalism is good. Where in fact, capitalism causes poverty. Capitalism is nothing but uh, fixing the laws so that it's legally okay to steal from people, to take part of their wages. And so whenever you get a job in the West and they offer you uh, so much an hour for pay, believe me, they're intending to make money off of that. Of course. If they can't make money off of that, then why should they hire you? And you kind of accept that. Yeah. But the Marxist-Leninist communist version of that is, oh no, the worker should get everything that is due to him. Let's have a cooperative so that the workers can work in a co-op and uh, each worker gets the full value of his own work. Mm. That way... A lot of people don't have to work so long. You see, right now, if you work from now until your retirement age, that's another, um, let us say, 40 years or plus. One of those years may be for you. 30 of them are going to be from some government or something. 
Another 20 of them are going to belong to some business uh, group or empire. And you do not get the, the value of your wages. Hmm. It, can be that. It, can, it can seem that way, yeah. It... Not seem. That's it. That's the facts of life. That's capitalism. Yeah, people I only who have money, make money off of the people who don't have so much. That's capitalism. Yes. No, I, I only meant that as uh, some some people do at the very top. They get the value of their time. It seems uh, that they, they get do. the money, but they don't get the value. OK, yeah, that's what I meant. But what you what you're saying makes perfect sense. Mm hmm. Well, if you are armed with that deep level of knowledge, if you can see from that, uh, let us call it series of vantage points. See, the only vantage point that you've been seeing so far was the vantage point of within capitalism. But when you step out of capitalism, you recognize, well, there's a whole lot better ways of doing it. Just being friends with each other helps a whole lot better rather than being in capitalistic competition. In mm. fact, capitalists have very few friends. That's part of the reason why their life is so poor. And mm. in fact, uh, the rich man will wind up finding out that most of the people he thought his, were his friends were just opportunists, capitalists just like himself, just out to take advantage whenever they could find it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's set up. It seems to be set up in a way that encourages attacking and uh, defense and offense there doesn't seem to be much space for collaboration friendship happiness joy and yet that model works just fine mm. but capitalism now has basically won over in many places mm -hmm. especially in the minds of the people who live under a capitalistic regime but the buddhist what is actually quite opposite to that. It's not capitalistic. That everybody's the same, everybody shares. Mm -hmm. That in fact, of all of the people that I have met in my life, the ones that I found always overly generous, the most generous, the most kind, were always the Buddhist monks that I was around. Mm. Because that's what they're practicing. Yeah, they don't go to work to practice capitalism. They don't go to work at all. And so they're free then to practice the very things that uh, are, let us say, the hallmarks of the teachings of the Buddha, mm -hmm. that there are better ways of doing it. And so now I want to introduce the concepts of the four requisites. Okay. The four requisites are actually in Sutta number two in the Saba Asava Sutta. And the first part of it is, is that the defilements that can be eradicated by seeing, and we'll talk more about that. And then there are defilements that are to be eradicated by avoiding. And then there are defilements that are to be eradicated by using. Now that on itself seems ridiculous. How can you, how can you, uh, um, let us say, remove a defilement by using? Yeah, I, I'm not, it's not clear. Yes, okay, so this is where the four requisites come in. 
I'll give you them in advance, and then we'll talk about each one shortly. And that is the requisite of just enough food, just enough clothing, just enough shelter, and just enough medical care. And as you can imagine, you probably know quite a lot of people who don't have enough of all of those things. That some people, in fact, don't have adequate housing because they're in fear of losing their housing this year. They're in fear of medical attention. They don't have enough of it. And so life is a struggle when we don't have enough of the things that we need. Yes. Psychology has known about this for quite a long time. But in fact, our general understanding is, is that there is a level of poverty or the poverty line whereby below that poverty line, there are going to be real difficulties, real dukkha, real problems in your life. But that if you can come up to a little basic standard, just a little bit above that, to where you have adequate housing, adequate food, adequate clothing, and adequate medical attention, then you're good to go. That should be satisfying, and that anything over that should be placed in the sense of wealth and generosity. Yeah. But our mentality is, no, the more I get, the better. The more I get, the better. And that's capitalism. They want you to be that way. Capitalism is built on greed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? Because they, the real greedy ones, the super greedy, are going to make a profit off of your greed. They can't make a profit off of your satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty hard. <laughs> pretty hard to get money out of someone who's satisfied and don't get go of it because, and in fact, this is well known within um, a certain criminal society is, is that you cannot cheat an honest man. Mm. You know what they mean by that? It means only a greedy fool will fall for their shtick. Mm, okay, yeah. That a wise man can see right through it. He's, he's probably wealthy enough to where he will uh, take a close look at it and recognize, hey, he don't need any of that. But it's the one who is ignorant and greedy who will fall for the, um, the bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, if we can come up to a standard to where we've got all of the basics done, now we're free to practice the Dhamma. And that we can look at it from the sense of, well, let's look at it from this sense. Let's talk about it in the sense of a meditation retreat that's so common and familiar in the West, so they're not doing so many of them this year. People think of a retreat as going to a bed and breakfast-like place, getting a hotel room, getting well-fed, being in a comfortable, beautiful environment, and they pay for it. Ten days for $2,000, and maybe a bit of Dhamma is thrown in on the side. (laughs) Okay, so that's the model. But the model that's coming out of Asia is nothing like that. The model that you would find in Asia is everybody comes to the Wat. We find a place on the floor. That's where we sleep. We don't bring much, just a bit of bedding. And we uh, camp out for the 10 days for free. Hmm. And get a whole lot of Dhamma in the process. Hmm. 
Okay, so now let's take that particular two models and say, well, wait a minute, if we can do that in, in one retreat setting, then why can't I do that for my whole life? Why can't I find an easy place to live instead of having the standard place to live? You know, in fact, in the United States, as well as many other countries, they have laws called zoning laws. Yes. And yeah. those zoning laws actually are quite racist intentionally. Mm. I haven't looked into it too much. Well, look at the house that you're living in. Do you need the bam uh, the uh, Japanese style paper curtains behind you? <laughs> In Japan, they're cheap. In the U.S., not so much. Mm. I mean, no, I don't need it. No. <laughs> so that's the thing that we begin to look at is, is that instead of looking at how can I get a job so that I can get all the things that my society tells me I need mm -hmm. and start looking at it from the sense of, oh, I already got everything I need. Mm -hmm. I've got too much. <laughs> Maybe this housing is way over. Where do you live, by the way? What city do you live in? I'm in Plymouth. Uh, Plymouth. It's in Minnesota. Plymouth, Minnesota. I know of Alawat in, in Wisconsin, but I don't know about Minnesota, but I know of several watts in Chicago. Okay. But I'm sure that there are uh, Asian watts in your vicinity. Okay. I'll see if I can find something. That'd be, that'd right. be cool. That'd be great. Yeah. So that you can go and get a taste of it. Uh, to get the idea that the monks, they don't need fancy living. But they're very happy, content. Yes, yes. Generally, the monks in, in the West are. And the reason for that is because uh, the beginners, the students are still in Asia. The lay people who are going to go through the expense of a visa and transportation for a monk to come stay at their newly built lot in the United States, they want really good monks and they know how to pick them out. Okay. <laughs> and so we have very high class monks in the United States worthwhile associating with, worthwhile being around. And so I offer you the possibility of go spending some time in the Asian watch and start. Um, now, I know that there's going to be a lot of fancy stuff in there. That's because the Asians find everything fancy in their house and throw it out or brother. They just drag it to the watch. <laughs> yep. OK. But the simple living is what we're looking at so that we can find a way of living easy. Because even if, in fact, you. Um, you had your medical care. And you add adequate clothing, if you add adequate uh, <clears throat> housing and um, adequate food, then what's the point of having a job? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it seems beside the point. Okay, let's look at it from the other perspective. And that is, if someone has a job, does that job pay him enough? to have adequate food, adequate clothing, adequate housing, and adequate medical care. Be careful about this question. Can you repeat the beginning of that question? Does the typical person who has a full-time job 
does he make enough money to have adequate okay. food, adequate medical attention, adequate clothing, and adequate housing? It doesn't seem like that's the case. Um, I know plenty. If of you ask most of them, they'll say, no, I don't have adequate housing. I want a bigger house. No, I don't have an adequate okay, wardrobe. Yeah. I, do, I need an, yet another suit. If they spent their money wisely, I think they would. But otherwise, ah, it doesn't seem to be the case. Okay. But when you say spending the money wisely, are you not pointing out that our society almost insists that we spend our money unwisely? Yes, all the time. Every day. But in fact, big business is not going to make any big bucks if they only sell to the wise. No, it's not. It doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay, so now we're beginning to understand. Um, let's, let's put something else on the table, and that is Gurdjieff. Have you ever heard of Gurdjieff? No. Gurdjieff was a mystic who was in, um, I'll give you the short part of the story. He was in Paris back in the 1920s, and he had a Dhamma society. He had a big house there. Uh, there was one guy who wrote a book about him. That's why we know about this. But there was many things that he would do. One of them was that there was a gardener who was there who everybody hated. And people kept asking Gurdjieff, why don't you get rid of this guy? And the answer was, because you still hate him. When you stop hating him, we won't have any need for him anymore. <laughs> okay. All right. But then there was the, the point that I want to make, and that is, is that Gurdjieff had a job. His job was is that he waited tables on, at a French restaurant in Paris. And he had a special arrangement with the owner of that restaurant. And that is, is that uh, Gurdjieff would uh, have the tables waited, but he did it with different students so that one student would go today, another student would go tomorrow, another student would go the next day, and he wound up with that one job supporting about 20 students, and every student had to work just one day a week or one day a month. Well. Wow. We could set up a society that were like that, too, that a job had to be done, yes, but that doesn't mean that everybody's got to go get a different job and work all day, that we can actually have a team so that I do the job today, you do it tomorrow, somebody else does it the next day, and we can spend our time free. Mm. So that's a different kind of model. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating. I, don't, I think a lot of Americans wouldn't even know what to do with with themselves without a job. They're going to have to find out because AI is coming for them. Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty, it's yeah, pretty the around corona, the... the coronavirus is nothing but a, uh, uh, let us call it the overture. <laughs> yeah, jobs this, are going to be gone. And the first, second, and third acts are yet to play out. Yeah, I mean, that's how I see it as well. I don't think this is a one time it's it's going to continue this decade it's going to be quite i think quite bad well wait a minute weren't you the one earlier in this conversation that we're talking about that you uh, felt fear or afraid that you weren't following the traditional model yeah and now we're finding out that the traditional model itself has got <laughs> really big issues coming up <laughs> i mean 
I mean, it's been conditioned, so. Right. So now let's talk about that Dhamma knife or that uh, being prepared. Mm-hmm. Because what the actual preparation then is, is getting yourself to where you can find a way to live with just enough food, just enough uh, clothing, just enough housing, and just enough medical care, so that you're not dependent upon the society to do that. And now back to the original point, and that is is that if you think that um, it's kind of dangerous to get out of the society, basically what we're talking about is the issue of fear. And if you can adequately, with that new Dhamma knife that we've got, you can uh, uh, prick that fear out so that you have a heart that is full of of, um, joy, satisfaction, and uh, safety and security, then when thoughts of the job come up, you say, wow, don't need that. And so this is another way of looking at it is, is that the Dhamma is the cure for the uh, Western capitalist life. Rather the, rather the cure, rather than, let us call it, uh, an appliance. Okay. Why? Because an appliance means that the Dhamma is going to give you whatever it takes, the oomph, the strength, the, uh, uh, the fearlessness, etc., to go out and live the life of an ordinary person. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly the same way that the pharmaceutical industry operates. They don't want to cure you. They just want to keep you sick and alive so you'll keep buying their medicine. Yeah. So they don't make cures. They could probably very easily find ways to cure diabetics situation but they don't because they're making too much money off of insulin yeah there's plenty of plenty of solutions out there but they're not uh, advantageous all right so now that we recognize that we can say well wait a minute I have now more information that I can make a better future for myself that I in fact can bring down uh, my needs down to the point that I can be satisfied without a job. And so now all you have to do is find a place where you can stay that's cheap. (laughs) And I know of at least 300 places in the United States and thousands of places here in Thailand. Mm. Yeah, I would have, I'd be very grateful and happy to (laughs) do that. I think I don't need much to to be satisfied, and nor would I want to have much to be satisfied. Because you okay. you've laid it out very well that that's not a solution. Um, it's part of just creating more problems. It does. It took me years to figure that out. Yeah. Um, I had to, I knew it intellectually, but I didn't know how to do it reality, and so I wound up retiring four times. Wow. Each time took more than four years of retirement, but then eventually back to work. But now I'm completely retired, and that's an option. You don't have to be in the workforce all the time. You come in and do a little bit, get some money, go back into uh, a better life. And also having enough friends, the friends are going to make sure that you've got enough. Yeah, it's a safety net 
That's what the Sangha is all about. The Sangha is literally a safety net of friends so that people don't have to quit the Dhamma in order to eat. <clears throat> okay, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. So if, um, if I find myself completely uh, without money and without a home, I, I can visit the uh, Sangha. This is the idea. Uh, yes, but I wouldn't plan it like that. I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't plan that, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't plan it that way. The better way of planning it is just to get yourself more and more down to the ba basic requisites. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. In other words, do it wisely. Learn what you can do without now and, and do without it. And when it's broken, don't replace it. Mm -hmm. And and if you're in debt, get out of debt. Mm -hmm. Pay it off. Whatever, whatever is necessary. Within. Whatever is necessary to get out of the society and do it in advance. Mm -hmm. That that's actually one of the requirements. No one can can become a monk, formally a monk. They can come and live at the Wat. Mm -hmm. That's easy enough. We have a lot of, in fact, all the Wats have uh, lay people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes more lay people than monks themselves. But you can't become a monk and be in debt. Because uh, in the old days, if someone became a monk uh, who was already in debt, the monks should have known that. And therefore, now that he's a member of their society, the monks have to uh, pay the debt off because he's one of them. And in, and in fact, that's actually happened on some occasions, not wow. recently. Even though the guy lied to him, they still to them they still didn't force him to disrobe so that he could go pay his debts. They found a way of getting the debts paid. Mm. But it's better to be free from debt. I agree. <laughs> I have student loans and I want them out as soon as possible. All right. Well then don't go out and eat. <laughs> Just enough food will do. A bologna sandwich and extra payments on those debts will go further than um, <laughs> a big fancy dinner. Mm, I agree. Yeah, I. It's one of those things that it's a, it's a pain. It's a pain in the ass. It's just sort of like a stick there that you want out. And, yes. Um, I completely understand. Like agree with everything you're saying. With it. Yeah. All right. Well, this, um, there is something that needs my attention that I've got to go for, so no, I'm going no to finish the call now. And I really am glad that you sat and listened to me harangue you about the capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> okay, Julian, we'll see you in a couple of days. All right, and thank we'll you. And we'll talk more about your practice, but it gives you something new to think about now. Thank you. All right.